Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream. We're grateful for each and every one of you this morning. Uh, Reach Church DeSoto, the venue down the hall. Grateful that all of you are joining up with us this morning. Um, As you're finding your place, I do want to remind you about Operation Christmas Child. So grateful for all of you that picked up a box, took it home. Hopefully you filled that up with supplies. Do want to remind you it's critical that you bring those back, all right? You've got to bring them back to the church. So reach church. That means you too out there in DeSoto. You've got to bring yours back. And and maybe some of you are like, I don't know, I didn't get a chance to participate. There's still time. There's boxes out in the foyer area. If you'd like to just bypass all that and do it online, you can do that as well. Go to our web uh, page. You'll find a tab there that allows you to build a box online, and you can uh, participate uh, with us in that way. What I want to do this morning before we begin, I don't know if you've heard, but there's an election coming up. You may not have seen anything on that, but... Uh, a few commercials out there. Um, if nothing else, I'm just tired of the commercials. Um, but, but we need to pray. Uh, we, as God's people, believe in the power of prayer. God commands us to pray, to humble ourselves before him, that he might heal our land, and we want to see God move. So what I'm going to do, you don't have to do this, but I'm going to I get on my knees before the Lord. Uh, I know some of you, it's not physically able. That's okay. And, and being on our knees doesn't make our prayers more acceptable to God. The, the reason we do it is to demonstrate to God in a physical way the posture of our hearts that we're humble before God. So if you want to make your way out to an aisle or come up here to the front, you can do that right now. I'm going to step over here and bend my knees. We're just going to pray together as God's people that he would move in our nation. We want to see God move. We believe in the power of prayer. So right now, you want to step out, you want to get out, no pressure. If you don't want to do that, God will still hear your prayers. You're good to go. But if you'd like to do that, because I'm going to do that, feel free. The altar is open here at the front. If you want to find a place, just to bend a knee and come before God and plead for him to move on behalf of our nation. That's what we're going to do right now. Father God, we come before you today just humbled in your presence. Your word says, if my people who are called by my name, if they'll humble themselves and pray. So God, we come before you with humble hearts. God, we praise you today because you are sovereign. God, we praise you today because you are good. We praise you today because you are holy. God, you're far greater than we can possibly imagine, and yet you love us, and we are so grateful. Jesus, we praise you that you gave up the glory of heaven. You came to this earth to die on a cross for our sins, to win the greatest battle, to to meet the greatest need of our lives, which was the forgiveness of our sins. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work of conviction of sin and, and righteousness and judgment Holy Spirit, we thank you because you are God and you convicted us and you drew us to the Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit. Today, we want to humble ourselves before you, God. We want to plead with you to move in our nation. We want to plead with you to move in our own hearts. God, we desire to see revival begin today and we pray that it would begin in our hearts. God, we confess before you today that if 
the light of God is not shining in our communities, if the salt is not preserving the holiness of God, we have no one to blame but ourselves. And so, God, we come before you today and we confess our sin and materialism. We confess the distractions and the things that have, that have turned our attention away from you and put our focus on other people or politicians or pieces of legislation. We come before you today, as we said earlier, broken. We come before you with repentant hearts on our knees, begging you to move in our hearts and in our lives to be your salt and your light in this world. God, we desire to see you move this week as people have cast their ballots and as ballots will be cast this week. God, we recognize that you are sovereign. We pray that your people as Christians, we would see the great beauty and the privilege that's given to us to participate in this democracy. God, to have the opportunity is a privilege. So God, I pray that we take advantage of this freedom to vote that people have fought and died for. God, please help us as your people to go and to vote on the basis of our values and biblical principles that our voter guide is your word. And so God, I pray that we would cast our ballots and then we would trust in you. That God, regardless of what happens this Tuesday, we will praise you because we know that you are God, we know that you're good, and we know that the ultimate victory has already been won. But God, help us to be your people, and we plead with you as much as we can. Bring revival in our nation. Call us back to our foundation of faith that we might know your blessing. And God, ultimately, we look forward to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will come. He is our hope. He is our refuge. We pray this in his name. Amen. 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 Thank you for your willingness to pray this morning. And I want to encourage you to continue to pray and to vote. If you, I know I've heard from so many of you already have voted. I'm a election day kind of guy. So Tuesday morning, I'll go cast my ballot. Uh, but thank you for those of you who have already voted and uh, Encourage others to get out and to vote, to avail ourselves of this great freedom we have in this nation. Well, this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 9, you remember when we left off last week, uh, Samuel has told them to go home and uh, that God would appoint a king for them. What's interesting is what Samuel does not do. Uh, you would assume, I, I think if I had been Samuel, I would have immediately sent out for some resumes. Uh, we've got a job opening now, and we're going to need to see who will fill this role. And, and so I probably would have taken resumes, or at the very least, began to delve into the genealogies of Genesis and decide from which tribe should the king come, maybe from the tribe of Judah, because God had declared the scepter will not depart from Judah, the kingly tribe. And so maybe I would have delved into all those things. But we get no indication that Samuel does any of that. What we see in Samuel's life, which is such a great example to all of us, is rather than try to manipulate the circumstance or the situation to bring about his appointed end, he will just simply begin to walk in faithfulness to God. Guess what he does? He just follows God in obedience to his word in the ordinary activities of his daily life. You know what I believe? I believe God often works to fulfill his plans through just the ordinary daily obedience and faithfulness of our lives. It's okay to set plans. It's okay to make plans and maybe to have goals. But 
But ultimately, we trust in the Lord and we walk in faithfulness. And so that's what Samuel does. And God is going to show up to Samuel. He's going to tell him tomorrow, at such and such a time, you're going to meet an individual from the tribe of Benjamin. And that will be the king. This is the beginning of the monarchy of Israel. And God is sovereign over every aspect of it. Well, let's pray together once more and then we'll work our way through God's word. Father, thank you for your word. This morning, Lord, we pray that you'd bless it. God, illumine our minds and our hearts to the truths of your word. And God, I pray that we not simply be hearers, but we'd be doers. That we'd leave here changed because we met with you and we heard from you. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me, verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. Began to study these names and began to delve deep on the tribe of Benjamin. It's interesting, you remember uh, Saul in the New Testament, who is Paul, will be very proud of the fact that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. But the tribe of Benjamin has a, a bit of a shady past. If you read back and you look in Judges 19 through 21, I'm not going to read all the salacious details here this morning, but it's good reading if you have an opportunity. But in the, the tribe of Benjamin, there were some men from Gibeah that were some Benjamites. And there's a priest who's traveling, traveling through that area, and he stops that evening. And these Gibeah men, who are Benjamites, engage in some very immoral activity. Very sinful, the likes of which the nation had never seen before. And word gets out through all the nation uh, that the tribe of Benjamin has acted in this way and they send out word to the Benjamites and they will not listen. They're stubborn in their disobedience. And so all the nation, all the other tribes come together against the one tribe of Benjamin. And so you have 400,000 men of Israel coming against 26,000 men of the tribe of Benjamin. And what's amazing about it, when you read in Judges 20, uh, all of Israel comes against the tribe of Benjamin on two occasions, and the tribe of Benjamin pushes them back on both occasions. Well, what kind of odds is this? 26,000 to 400,000. They push them back twice. They kill over 40,000 Israelites. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin, they were the best of warriors. They had left-handed men. They had men who could fight with both hands. They were the navy seals of the Israelite army. And they push them back twice. And it's not until God kind of intervenes and, and they, the men of Israel gain the upper hand and they began to kill the Benjamites. And there's only 600 men of Benjamin left and they hole up in the wilderness and they're still fighting off Israel and they're going to fight to the death. <laughs> the picture here is the tribe of Benjamin. These are some fighters. They're warriors. And what God wants us to know is that this Saul, this first king, he's going to trace his lineage back to one of those 600 men. Meaning he's a warrior. He's a man's man. He's a fighter. Now, what did the nation want? What did they ask for? We want a guy who can lead us into battle. They don't ask for a man of God. 
They don't ask for a man who loves God. We just want a great warrior. Well, here he is. I'm going to give you a guy who traces his lineage back to the best of the best of the warriors. Look on in verse 2. It says he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there's not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. For from his shoulders and up, he stood taller than any of the people. Not only is he an incredible warrior, but he is handsome. It makes this statement, there was nobody more handsome in all of Israel. And he's tall. He has every physical feature that you would expect to see in a great warrior. And again, this is what they asked for. They wanted a man who, who played the part in his physical appearance. They wanted a showpiece. They were embarrassed by the fact when somebody said, who leads you on to battle? Well, this old man, Samuel, leads us out. They want, no, we want, we want a, a Goliath-type figure. We want a man with with a physical presence that would, would scare the nations just by his mere presence. And you remember what did Saul's name mean? Literally in the Hebrew, you asked for it. You want it, you got it. And what you will find in Saul is a man who is physically impressive, but he's spiritually inept. There's no depth of faith to this man. You will not see Saul pray. You will not see him search the word of God. This is a man who is physically inclined. He's an Esau with no real love for the things of God. The antithesis of, of Saul is a man that it says in Isaiah 53 that he has no stately form or majesty that you should look upon him nor appearance that you should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men and man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we did not esteem him. The antithesis of Saul is Jesus. In fact, we're even going to see in Samuel, there was no physical markings that made Samuel stick out from the, the, from the crowd. He was just an average guy. He was an ordinary guy. It's amazing when you look in Scripture. It's oftentimes the great leaders that God raises up, they are not in physically, physically impressive people. In fact, I was uh, reminded this week as I was studying this passage, I wrote a paper uh, that I got a little bit mocked about in, in seminary that made the argument that, that David, in the description that's given of David, how do we always picture David? What are the sculptures of David? This very impressive, handsome man. And I basically wrote a paper that said he probably wasn't that handsome. He wasn't that impressive. He was the runt. He was ruddy. The words that are used of him in the Hebrew are not impressive terms. Might be a shock to some of you, but he's probably ugly. You know, probably wasn't the best looking guy in the bunch. But he was a man who loved God. This is me, the men and women that God uses in Scripture are more often than not. Now, we do have some Esthers, all right? But more often than not, the people that God uses are ordinary people. You remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? Consider your calling, brethren, not many are wise, mighty, and noble, that the church is not the collection of the most beautiful, brightest, most intelligent people in the world. Some, not many, that's what he says. But, but that's not us. We're a people that what makes us great is we love God. And the foundation of our life is his word. It's a good reminder that we see here this principle that plays out in scripture where you're looking for men and women who are going to lead. Listen, care very little about their physical appearance. Find people who love God. Ladies, you're looking for a husband. Don't get too drawn to his appearance. 
praise God, faith didn't take that into account for me. Uh, but look for men who love God. Look for men who have a foundation of faith in God. Well, Saul, he's physically impressive, but there's no spiritual depth to this man. Look at verse three. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, take now with you one of the servants and arise. Go search for the donkeys. It's very interesting. The beginning of the monarchy of Israel begins not with some great vision, not with some great miracle, but the monarchy of Israel begins with some lost donkeys. That's how the whole thing is going to get started. And it's a good reminder that, that, that in these stories that we see and the narrative as it plays out, and even in our own life, God is sovereign over every activity of our life. That God is sovereign even over the things that we would consider to be ordinary or mundane or rudimentary activities of our lives. God is sovereign over those things. Uh, even over what we think is ordinary. That God upholds the universe and directs all things according to their appointed end. That God is sovereign. And what, what we see pictured here in this narrative is a doctrine, a key doctrine of our faith. One of my favorite doctrines to study, which is the providence of God. The providence of God. And the providence of God, the reason why I love the providence of God is because it intertwines both the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. It intertwines together both the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. And what we'll see in this narrative is that Saul is making everyday choices. He will freely choose to go certain places and do certain things. In fact, he has a good start here. He's obedient to his father. Initially, he's going to start out as just a servant who's obedient to his father. But he freely chooses. But at the same time as we watch this, we know that God is sovereign and overshadows and is orchestrating all of Saul's free choices for his divine will and plan. How do we know? How do we know that's the case? Well, God tells us in verse 15, the day prior, God came to Samuel and said, I'm going to maneuver Saul to this place so that you can meet up with him for a divine appointment. I love this. Free will. Listen, if we don't have free will, we're robots. And God didn't create robots. He gives us the freedom to choose. But at the same time, if God is not sovereign, then God's not God. And some of you right now, your minds are exploding. I mean, how can these two things go together? Well, listen, you may have trouble comprehending it, but it's no problem to God. Listen to me today. Your free choice never interferes with God's sovereign plan. And the beauty that we see in this is that God is sovereign even over the ordinary activities of our lives, maneuvering our lives for his purposes. How many of you could look back over the course of your life and say that it was through the random circumstances and the ordinary activities of your day that you made choices that led you to a place that changed your life forever? I can tell you about going to a bookstore on a day. I freely chose to go to a bookstore and purchased books for classes I was taking in seminary. And there just so happened to be a short girl standing there who couldn't reach a book. And she just so happened to ask me. And the ordinary circumstances of my day-to-day -day life changed my life forever. And how many of you have stories just like that? 
Listen, God, uh, somebody, I remember they uh, said, uh, <laughs> they asked their preacher one time, what makes you think God, God is interested in my little things? And he said back, what, what, what makes you think God's interested in your big things? <laughs> Listen, even your little things are big to God. You serve a God who knows you by name, knows every hair on your head. He knew you before the foundation of the world. And he's interested and he's involved in the everyday, ordinary activities of your life. Now, don't let it overwhelm you. <laughs> you get too caught up on this, you'll be, well, boy, God's sovereign over where I'm going to lunch today. Don't let it overwhelm you, but it's true. He is sovereign over that. But our free choices, God is actively involved. And, and some people, this whole idea, it frightens them. They get scared to death of this. Listen, I'm here to tell you, this is the doctrine I love. You know why? Because there's no more comforting doctrine in all the world than the sovereignty of God. You say, how can that be the case? Well, listen to me. Whenever you're going through trials in your life, whenever you're going through deep and hurtful pains, you know the one thing you gotta know? The one thing I know that I gotta know, I gotta know somebody's in control. I gotta know somebody's not asleep at the wheel, that there is a God who is in control of all these circumstances, that it's not just left to chance, it's not chaotic, and Satan doesn't have the ultimate say. I gotta know somebody's in control. And the second thing I gotta know is not only is somebody in control, I gotta know he's good. And listen to me today, we serve a God who is perfectly good. And if we ever have need to doubt his goodness, we have only need to look to the cross where he sent his son to die for you. Don't tell me God's not good. And don't tell me God can't work through evil circumstances. You know where you need to look? The cross. Where his own son was crucified for our sin to bring about the greatest good we could ever know, which was the salvation of our souls. Oh, boy, there's nothing more comforting than knowing that God is in control. But secondly, listen, you know what it also makes me do? It makes me worship. To know that I serve a God who's involved and interested in the ordinary activities of my life. You remember what David said? When I consider your heavens, the works of your hand, the moon and the stars, which you ever done. What is man that you take thought of him? David's just out with the sheep one day and he's looking up at the stars and he's saying, God, why would you even think about me? Listen to me. I'm here to tell you God does think about you. And he's involved in your everyday ordinary activities. It's all big to him and he loves you working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Oh, man, I don't know about you, but that makes me worship. Well, God is sovereign over these events as Saul freely chooses. Look at verse 4. It says, he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find him. They passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find him. <laughs> What's interesting about this, you... It, try to read. We have difficulty because we've read these stories so many times we know the end at the beginning. Try to read it as somebody who's never read the story before. And if you read it in that kind of way, you, you get a little confused because you're thinking, what is this story about these lost donkeys? I mean, why are we getting so much detail about some lost donkeys? You're wondering, who is this Saul guy and why do we care about donkeys so much? And, but God is giving us the details 
in order to, to remind us and so that there might be no mistaking who's behind it all. We've already seen that God is sovereign over mice <laughs> that he brings on the Philistines. He's sovereign over cows. And guess what? He's sovereign over donkeys. And he's leading them so that he can put Saul in just the right spot. Look at what it says in verse five. Then they came to the land of Zuth. And Saul said to his servant who is with him, come and let us return or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. You see that word Zuth, it should be familiar to you. You should have a cross reference that says 1 Samuel 1.1. We learn there that, that uh, Samuel's, uh, Samuel's great, 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 great grandfather was Zuth. And so what we're learning, why is that important? Because Saul just so happens to be looking for some lost donkeys. And he just so happens to get to a place where he wants to give up. And the place that he stops at is Zuth. Meaning he stops, Zuth is the region of Ramah, which is Samuel's hometown. You remember when we talked about the cows and God made them stop at just the right spot? Right here, God makes Saul stop right where he wants to so that he can have a divine encounter with Samuel that God told Samuel about the day prior. God is good. Look at what it says in verse six. He said to him, behold now, there's a man of God in this city and the man is held in high honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. What's interesting about this is uh, Saul doesn't know about the man of God, but his servant does. Again and again, we see in this story that Saul is not spiritually inclined. Um, in fact, you read this story and Saul just kind of bumbles and stumbles his way through it. Um, but God is sovereign. And so he says, we know about a man of God. Verse seven, then Saul said to his servant, but behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And so Saul's reaction is, well, even if there is a man of God, we don't have anything to bring to him. He's a pessimist. He has no faith. Whenever I read that, I thought of immediately, I thought of Philip from John chapter six. And you remember when God, or when Jesus says to him, feed these folks. And Philip says, uh, 200 denarii of bread wouldn't feed these people. And Philip was demonstrating. He had no faith. And here we see that Saul, time and again, he has no faith. Well, look at what the servant says. In verse 8, the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I'll give it to the man of God, and he'll tell us our way. I just so happen to have a little money on me. How about that for coincidence? And here it is. There's just a quarter, uh, a fourth of a shekel of silver. I don't have much. It's the five loaves and the two fish. And the fact of the matter is it didn't really matter what they brought. Saul, all he thinks about is the earthly and not the eternal. Look at verse 9. It says, Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come and let us go to the seer, for he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. Just a footnote here to remind you there uh, what, what is a prophet uh, used to be a seer. A seer was a person who could look into hidden things. And uh, the indication here is that Saul is not interested in meeting the man of God because he loves God and wants to know this man of God. He's only in interested in finding his donkeys. Again, he has no harder love for God or the things of God. He just wants his stuff. 
Then in verse 10, then Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the slope to the city, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And they answered them and, and said, he is. See, he's ahead of you. Hurry now, for he's come into the city today. For the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. Verse 13, as soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for you will find him at once. So they just so happened to stop at Zeus. Zeus, they just so happened to meet these women coming down to draw water. They just so happened to know that the man of God is there. And he just so happens to be offering a sacrifice on that day. And so they say, if you'll hurry, you'll find him. He's right there. And so all these people have gathered. They're waiting on Samuel to bless the food. I picture them all gathered around the table, and there's two empty seats at the head table at the front spots, and probably everybody's wondering, who are these seats for? What's our, who's our surprise guest? So we read on in the story. It says in verse 14, so they went up to the city. As they came into the city, behold. You, notice how many times the word behold. Uh, you could read that just so happens. <laughs> The world looks at these things as coincidental. We look at it and say, look at what God's doing. And behold, uh, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. And so God is orchestrating all these events for this divine encounter. In verse 15, now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he'll deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've regarded my people because their cry has come to me. So God had showed up to Samuel the day before, and he told him at this appointed time, God's exact in his nature, right about this time, Samuel, set your watch. Why does God do this? Because he wants no doubt in Samuel's mind that this is not coincidence, that God is behind it. And God says, this is my man, and he'll deliver the people, for their cry has come to me. It's very interesting. You remember last week in chapter 8, it said that there would come a moment where they'd grow tired of the king, and God would sound really good to them, and they'd cry out to God, but God wouldn't listen. Well, that day hasn't come yet. And right here, they're not crying out against the king. They're crying out for deliverance. And God hears their prayer. And he's going to move in response to their prayer. And it was just a reminder to me as I was reading this story, just a word spoken to me, I felt like. But God was reminding me that, listen, God is always inclined to be gracious to his people when they cry out to him in prayer. These people are stubborn. They've rejected God. They will not really trust God. But when they cry out to God, he hears and he moves in response to, his pray to their prayers. Listen, I don't know why it is, but oftentimes when we find ourselves in sin or when we've messed up and we know it, one of the things that Satan will lie to us and say is now that you've messed up, you can't go to God. And it's the biggest lie Satan could ever tell. When every time you see in Scripture, when a person turns to God in repentance and trust, he welcomes him with open arms. Can I just tell you today, I don't know where you're at or how you've messed up, but turn to God, he's inclined. His inclination is always towards grace and love and forgiveness. So they've cried out. This is the answer to their prayers. Verse 17, when Samuel saw 
uh, saw Saul, the Lord said to him, behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. And then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, please tell me where the seer's house is. (laughs) Saul doesn't even recognize Samuel. He didn't even know there was a man of God there. And then when he does see him, he doesn't recognize him. Well, it gives indication further that this all has no interest in spiritual things. But it's also a reminder that Samuel, there was nothing about him that would have stood out from a crowd. Um, it was, it's the mark of Samuel's life that will point us to Jesus, that anybody could just approach him. As I thought about this, Jesus... When he came to this earth, he humbled him by becoming obedient and was a servant. And children would approach Jesus. There was nothing imposing about his character. There was, he was approachable. Women would approach him. The woman at the well would have a conversation with him. Um, No stately former majesty. And here is Samuel, just a humble servant. Saul doesn't even recognize him. Verse 19, Samuel answered Saul and said, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning, I'll let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. Uh, Samuel is telling Saul that before we anoint you as king, you're going to make sacrifice and you're going to have fellowship with God. You're going to worship God. It's kind of a divine moment that before we anoint you as king, we need to recognize God. We need to be reminded of the promise. You know, when the uh, founding fathers were writing the, apart from the word of God, one of the most amazing documents, and they were gathered, uh, Benjamin Franklin looked at George Washington's chair, and on the back of George Washington's chair was the picture of a sunrise. It was carved out of the chair, a sunrise. And Benjamin Franklin remarked that I couldn't tell if it was a sunrise or a sunset. He said, I couldn't tell if God was about to do something really great or the sun was setting on something we had just hoped for. But do you know what they did in that moment? They hit their knees and prayed. That they recognized that if we're going to found this nation upon a document, we better go to God. And in a record amount of time, these men from diverse backgrounds all came together in unity towards a document that would found our nation. Here we see as the monarchy begins, Samuel's telling Saul, we're gonna have to worship God first. We're gonna have to go to God. Verse 20 is your donkeys which were lost, as for your donkeys which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them for they've been found And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's household? And don't worry about your donkeys. That's taken care of. In fact, you are the desire of all of Israel. Samuel's telling Saul, God is about to exalt you. Do you remember what we've seen all throughout Samuel already? God raises up who he wants to raise up and he puts down who he wants to put down. Samuel's saying, you're about to be raised up. You are the answer to Israel's prayer. You are what they have asked for. Verse 21, Saul replied, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? This is the the initial uh, reaction here of, of Saul to 
to just the initial thought of him being anointed and raised up is that I'm nothing. And it's beautiful. It's interesting, when we see humility in people, it's always beautiful. And arrogance is always like fingernails on a chalkboard. Why? Because we know when people puff themselves up and talk great about themselves, what do we know? <laughs> we know they're just a sinner. <laughs> they're just like us. And so it's, it, it, but here in, in the early part of Saul's life, he's going to demonstrate humility. But is it not also possible for a man to start out with humility? They start out with humility and a recognition of God, but when they're thrust into a position of leadership, they forget where they came from and they become very arrogant and self-centered. Great leaders never forget where they came from. They never forget what they are at the end of the day, and that's a sinner saved by grace. So here is Saul demonstrating humility at the beginning, and it's beautiful. Um, it says in 22, then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said to you, set it aside. And then the cook took up the leg with, with what is on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here is what's been reserved. Set it before you and eat because it has been kept for you until the appointed time. Since I, had, uh, I said I have invited the people, so Saul ate with Samuel that day. This appointed time, God has worked all this together for this appointed time. And, and the picture here is of Samuel and Saul eating together in fellowship. Saul represents the priest. He represents the prophet of God and the final judge. And on the other side, you have Saul who represents the monarchy and the king. And you get here what is intended to be a good picture of church and state. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about separation of church and state, and I'm grateful for it. I don't want the state telling me who I can worship and who I cannot worship because I'm afraid they tell me to worship something other than God. And so we really appreciate the separation of church and state. But you need to know that early on, especially as the church was beginning, there was nothing more fearful than a government that didn't recognize God. <laughs> if you don't have God involved in the government, we're in big trouble. But you see a picture here, I think, of how God intended this to work that both the king and the priest are divided, but they are both in fellowship, meaning they, they counter one another, and they are both submissive to God as the authority. And that's what you're seeing here. There's an image here that's beautiful. In Samuel, Samuel gives you every indication that I'm not raising up Saul. I'm just doing my part. And Saul is overwhelmed at what God is doing, and both of them are submissive to God. Both recognize God's sovereignty. And then in verse 25, when they came down from the high place in the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. They have a conversation, and then they arose early at daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, get up that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And then in verse 27, as they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. What is Samuel's job? To proclaim the word of God. What is going to be the foundation of the monarchy? The word of God. It all begins with a foundation in the truth of who God is. What do we do with this? Three things I want to remind you. Number one is the providence of God. I spent a lot of time on it early, but I hope and pray it's very encouraging to you today to know that God is sovereign. He gives us the free will to choose, but he's sovereign even over our choosing. 
And he's working all things together, even in the ordinary mundane activities of our lives. He's working it together according to his perfect purpose and plan and will. Know this today, not all things are good, but God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He loves you. He's good. You may not understand your circumstances right now. It may be confusing to you. It may at times be frustrating. Listen, God is big enough to handle your frustration, but know this today, never doubt God's goodness. He's in control and he is good. Secondly, we see in this story a picture of of a man who he starts out and he's physically impressive. He's got everything this world would look at and say, man, that's a great leader. But he's lacking the one thing that's truly required of all the great men that are going to lead. And that's a foundation of faith. And the cracks in his foundation will later become gaping holes as the weight of leadership begins to fall on Saul's shoulders. He's going to falter every time because there's no foundation of faith in his life. It's a good reminder to us, we are broken. We, uh, we do have some cracks in our lives, but the foundation of our lives is the word of God. And there's no crack in the word of God. It's perfect. It's true. And so listen, uh, as we begin our lives, if we want to do great things for the Lord, it doesn't require perfect people, but it requires a people who will rest firmly in a faith and trust in God and his word that he is good. Make the foundation of your life the word of God and it will sustain you. You'll become like that tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Everybody wants to be that guy. Everybody wants to be the tree. But the prerequisite is that you delight in the law of the Lord and in his law you meditate both day and night. Make the foundation of your life the word of God. And then finally, you know what we see here? We see a priest. We see the priest represented in in Samuel. We see the prophet represented in Samuel. And we see the king represented in Saul. You see the division of power. You never see these two offices combined. one, One occasion in the Old Testament, you see an individual in whom those two offices are combined. What's that individual's name? He's mentioned in Hebrews. Melchizedek. In fact, the author of Hebrews, you know why he brings up Melchizedek? Because everybody was saying, how can Jesus be uh, our priest when he doesn't come from the priestly line? And the author of Hebrews says that's because he's come from the line of Melchizedek. Because he, Jesus, is the one person in whom we find the office of priest and king combined. You never find it in an individual because uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But in Jesus, we'll find a priest. He's not only the priest, but he's the sacrifice. And he's the prophet of God because he declares the truth of God perfectly. He's the embodiment of truth. And he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And get this, folks. He's not running for savior. It's not a democracy. God has appointed him king. And we await for his final return. Now, he's king today. Make no mistake about it. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It doesn't matter if you want him or not. He's king. And if you'll bend the knee to him today, you can know his grace and his forgiveness and his freedom. But if you will not bow today, you will bow one day forcibly when he returns because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. One day, no more politics, no more religion, only Jesus Christ, priest and king forever. Amen?
ruling in perfect righteousness and peace. And what we tell you today is if you don't recognize him as king today, bend the knee and know his freedom, know his forgiveness, know his salvation. He's a wonderful king. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word today. It's so relevant, this ancient text that's relevant in our lives today that reminds us of your providence. God, all of us can look back over the ordinary activities of our lives and see what seemed to be ordinary turned out to be your great work of bringing about your purposes and plans. God, I pray we would praise you for that and I pray that we would rest in that today. God, I know there's some people in this room, maybe watching online, they're going through some things that I can't even begin to fathom. I pray that they would rest in the knowledge that you are in control and you're good. God, I pray for all of us that we would make the foundation of our life your word, that we would delight yourself in your word so that we might have a foundation of faith that will sustain us through the winds and the waves and the trials and the circumstances of life. And God, I pray finally for anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would reveal the depth of their sin and the depth of their need. And I pray today they would turn to King Jesus and they would know his forgiveness. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.